This is Joe Aliani of O'Neill and Associates in Seven Letter, and this is OA on Healthcare. It's been a while since our last podcast, and a lot has happened since. The Commonwealth has confronted, worked its way through, and fingers crossed, turned the corner successfully on an unprecedented viral pandemic and its devastating economic impacts. But the rapid spread of the Delta variant and the increased vulnerability of the unvaccinated now qualifies that completely positive outlook. One other thing that I want to make clear, any heartening view about moving beyond the worst of COVID-19 in no way can minimize the suffering of those nearly 665,000 Massachusetts citizens who suffered the effects of the coronavirus or the loss experienced by the families and friends of those 17,000 and a half who died as a result of COVID-19. So while we should never forget that pain and tragic loss, we can be encouraged about the future. As businesses reopen, people return to work, family members recover and return home, and our downtowns become active again. At the onset of the spread of the coronavirus in Massachusetts, Governor Baker tapped Secretary of Health and Human Services Mary Lou Sutters to take on the role as head of the COVID-19 Command Center and to coordinate the state's all-hands effort to respond to this unprecedented health emergency. We're pleased to have Secretary Sutters with us today. Madam Secretary, welcome to OA on Healthcare and thank you for taking the time to share some of your perspectives on the pandemic and the challenges that you faced in leading the state's effort to combat the COVID-19 virus. Thank you, Joe. It's always good to be with you, even if it's virtually, uh, and to uh, you know give people a sense of where we are today in Massachusetts. Well, I want to start with both a statement and a question. Uh, even considering what was certainly unpredictable and the unknown nature of the COVID-19 virus, it appeared that the Commonwealth's public health infrastructure initially was either unprepared or didn't have the capabilities to meet the challenges of the health crisis. Is that an inaccurate or unfair statement to make? Well, I think that the pandemic stretched and stressed um, every public health system both locally at a state level and nationally. The, um, so in Massachusetts in particular, um, we are a state that, as you know, very much believes in local control. Uh, and that's really part of our you know, charter in Massachusetts. And so we have, we are the most completely decentralized public health infrastructure in the United States. Uh, Every other state has a county or regional system. And uh, we have 351 local public health departments. And the infrastructure is completely different from Pittsfield to Provincetown to Saugus to Sherburne and everything in between. Uh, and you know, a pandemic doesn't appreciate boundaries and borders as we know uh, from this pandemic. And it really did require a, a different kind of response than um, I think a different kind of crisis our local health departments would have completely been able to support. This really was an all hands on deck, 
a really different out-of-the-box kind of response needed. So I, I, I certainly want to get into some of the challenges that you faced personally while dealing with the demands of, of the pandemic. But, but first, I wanted to ask about some of the lessons that you and others on the state team might have learned even while you were trying to react to the daily claims that the pandemic was making on you, that the, some of the lessons that not only may have served you well, uh, but that may also guide state and local healthcare managers in the future, uh, if and when they're likely to face crises of similar gravity. What were some of those? Sure. So first of all, I would just want to remind everyone that at this time, we are still um, very much dealing with the pandemic. Um, Massachusetts, if we were a country, here's the good news. If we were a country, this is one of the uh, two states, three states you want to be in if we were a country, Massachusetts, Vermont, and Connecticut. So I'm going to talk about lessons, but I do want to put it in the perspective of we're in a very different place today than we were. But the pandemic is still, COVID is like, what I say is it's in our side view mirror. Um, and I look forward to the day it's in our rear view mirror. Uh, so the good news is it's not completely surrounding us in those, those first 16, 15, 16 months. Um, first of all, leadership matters. Um, calm, deliberative leadership matters in a pandemic. Uh, we saw how it failed us at the national level, and we saw how important it was at state levels for um, the governor and others to be very public about what we knew, what we didn't know, to provide as much data as we knew, and to be as transparent as possible. That may seem simplistic to people, but there are plenty of examples, both within our country and internationally of where you see where leadership matters and uh, in a positive way and the failures of leadership. So that is one. The second is um, you have to be really comfortable making decisions. Um, you know, we had a couple of phrases. One was we have a need for speed because um, you want to get as in front of the uh, pandemic as possible once vaccines had been authorized on an emergency basis to get as many people as vaccinated as possible. Um, so we had a need for speed. And so uh, one of the things you had to become really comfortable with was making the best decisions you could with incomplete data because you didn't have the luxury of time. And then you had to also have the courage to say, this is not, this is not working, and to be able to flex and be nimble. And as you know, government is not always, uh, government is about checks and balances, right? Uh, and it's not always equipped to be, um, to be that nimble. And I would say that that is one of the things that we were um, pretty good at in Massachusetts was having the courage to make decisions with the best information available to us um, at that time and be willing to be nimble uh, going forward. And I think, uh, and you know, uh, when things didn't work, you, you, you owned up to them and you move forward. I mean, that's all you can do. But um, 
I think communication was also very important. Um, and let me just give you one. So one of the things I've heard from um, people in the deaf and hard of hearing community is how important the governor press conferences were for two reasons. One is we almost had 100% availability of interpreters. And you realized how, how particularly vulnerable folks were reliant on that noontime press conference for as much information as possible. You and I might get it from all kinds of different places, but for some people, that was like their source of information, good and bad. So some of what you said probably anticipates this, uh, this next question, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask it anyway, and that is that you certainly had uh, a, a number of unexpected and certain, certainly troublesome obstacles to overcome throughout the, the pandemic. Uh, lack of adequate personal protective equipment uh, at the start, along with, with um, uh, too few ventilators, the overcapacity in some of our hospital wards and our ICUs, the obvious mixed and false messages coming from Washington and a pretty tough start to the, uh, to the vaccination rollout among, among some others. Was there any time or were there many times when you threw up your hands and said, what the hell are we supposed to do now? Um, or, or how the hell did this happen? So um, there were some dark days. Um, uh, you know, you, you feel every death, um, honestly, because um, uh, you have to. Um, uh, I, you never throw up your hands. Um, uh, one of the things I think, uh, I mean, you can't, you can't throw up your hands. You have to lean in harder, Joe, during a pandemic, um, honestly. Uh, and I think that was the mantra that we had in the command center and with the governor, which was, we, we will figure this out. We will, we will bring together the best minds in Massachusetts. As you know, we put together a medical advisory board and like, tell us what, how this data, what the data is saying to us, um, put out the data, keep refining the data. Um, it's, um, there were moments though, when you, uh, when you realize that states in the early days were really on their own. Um, and one of the things I think uh, folks should be proud about in Massachusetts was our healthcare system, as competitive as it can be, and you know that, you and I both know that, from the very earliest moments, our hospitals in particular operated as one system. We shared PPE. Um, there were almost daily, well, there were daily phone calls with the major hospitals. We set up field hospitals, you know, Eric Dixon in UMass, right? A former medic in the army. Like he understood what field hospitals were. And he gave, he was like, we're in, we're going to set it up. Uh, and it gave courage to some other hospitals. We set up five in Massachusetts. We only needed to use three, but we set up five. Um, the sharing of ventilators, um, Boston Children's Hospital, right? Not really affected in the early parts of the pandemic shared their ventilators with other hospitals, other, other QCAR hospitals in Massachusetts who needed, who needed ventilators. Um, we borrowed ventilators from other states and shared things that we had with them. But you realized um, states were on their own. 
PPE is, I often refer to as my favorite four letter word. Um, <laughs> when you realized how much of our healthcare supply chain was global and we couldn't bring in PPE from, you know, other countries. Um, and there was like scamming going on, people trying to sell you stuff that they didn't own. So uh, the onslaught was making sure that we had enough PPE, which was an insufficient supply, do everything we could to, to get it and to watch our very competitive healthcare system really operate as a system. I can tell you th that now because I can also tell you they're sort of back into right operating as their independent uh, systems now. But for 15 months, they, they, they patient loaded with one another. They, if one emergency room in one part of the state was feeling strained, other parts of our state were like, send your patients to us. The field hospitals were a safety valve for um, many. And I relaxed as many regulations as I could, ensuring always safety and quality. But, you know, it was a pandemic and we needed to operate differently. So I am, I am pleased with how our healthcare system operated. Um, we were very in, um, we were uh, very nimble in how we we tried to shop for supplies. Um, everyone knows about the craft plane going to China, bringing back supplies to Massachusetts. And uh, you know our administration uh, invested in local companies to basically convert or add new manufacturing, so we could actually develop our own gowns and, M9, and N95 masks in Massachusetts made with um, US products. So that we don't, that is one of the lessons is that we need to have sort of some redundant manufacturing so that we don't get caught with everything being dependent on, you know, international supply. A, a couple of things. One is that I know that in the, the deepest days of your frustration, there's no way that you would throw up your hands and not continue to move forward. That that much I certainly know. The other thing is having been involved uh, initially in in some of the issues about supply of PPE early on. I know how dysfunctional it was and what a scam uh, some of those early purported suppliers, um, you know, tried uh, to to perpetrate on people trying to trying to get supply. Uh, and finally, I guess I would say is, were it only uh, possible that the cooperation that existed among our providers and community then continued into the future, it would really make a difference. Uh, I do think, but I do think um, if there's a, one of the silver linings uh, out of a pandemic, like one of, the, one of the positive lessons is that the healthcare system um, they really can set aside their uh, competitiveness for the what's best for Massachusetts and the residents, um, expanding to supporting community health centers, um, stepping up field hospitals. I mean, some of our, it, it was, we were never overrun. Um, our healthcare system was never overrun. And I watched you know, when you say dark days, my dark days was watching what was happening in some other parts of the country yeah. and, you know, worrying about, you know, was this the avalanche coming here and doing everything to work with our 
healthcare partners to make sure that that's, that's, that didn't happen. I mean, you know, we set up, we had no idea how many field hospitals we might need, right? So we set up five, we used three. And I'm sure, you know, some auditor someday will come back and look at this and say, well, why did they set up five? Um, you wanted to be, you wanted to be as prepared for this un, ever evolving pandemic. I mean, what we know today about COVID-19 is very different than what we knew of course. in February and March, right? The asymptomatic of spread of it. Yeah. Well, we all know that hindsight is 2020. So yeah. um, the Delta variant. So now it accounts for over 50% of the new infections in the United States. The infection rates from the variant are certainly surging in the South. Uh, it's spreading at a rate 225% faster than the original virus. Public health professionals are now concerned that the variant is a threat not only to the low vaccination regions, but to those that have met vaccination goals. And certainly it's a great accomplishment that we've reached 63% or more of our citizens fully vaccinated, but that still leaves more than a quarter vulnerable. So. Is there reason to think that mask requirements or social distancing or other restrictions that have so far been lifted here may need to be reimposed? So um, first and foremost, the it's important to know that the best defense against the against variants are vaccinations. Right. And we have been we are really focused on getting as many people uh, vaccinated as possible. We have now, so our, um, our numbers, um, so we over 81% of individuals, uh, who are adults in Massachusetts have had at least one dose Yeah. and it's 67% of our, of all residents are fully vaccinated. That's so right. our, what we're really focusing on right now is I refer to it as it's almost like, um, political can canvassing, but it's vaccine canvassing like door to door every every possible mechanism right temporary buses trains um working with our physician community to to talk to their patients and like leaning in um uh, the door knocking I, I can't remember what the statistic is at this moment but we've knocked on thousands and thousands of doors around vaccine in multiple languages so that's what that's first second is at this time um, you know, the Delta variant is the dominant in the United States. And what we're going to do is, as we've done throughout this, is we're going to continue to watch very carefully the data and see if it changes. Um, we're, we're always prepared, right, to institute public health measures as we believe um, they're warranted. Massachusetts, you know, we put in a mask order, Joe, before the CDC did mm -hmm. a year ago, yeah. right? We um so we are not shy about implementing public health measures as the data warrants it uh the good news is mid-atlantic states and the, new england you know we're in we're in a reasonable place but we need to be really vigilant uh, particularly as we come into the fall yeah i uh yeah i mean i i have this growing concern about the spread of this variant because as as you uh, alluded to earlier, viruses don't honor state borders. Um, 
and uh, and the the rapid spread of this variant is is of great concern. Um, the 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 other thing about um, you know vaccinations, and I just want to um, is that even you know vaccinations aren't one hundred percent foolproof, right? And so yeah. we've had you know even in our um, breakthrough cases, but the vast majority of people who get infected, even with the Delta variant, is you're not you're not as sick, you're probably not hospitalized, and you're not going to die. Um, and the, the likelihood of dying um, once you're vaccinated is really low. So again, I really, you know, we're doing everything possible. And I um, just, you know, we have knocked on more than a half a million doors in Massachusetts, in, in those communities in our most impacted communities, um, disproportionately impacted to really uh, get the word out about vaccines and having them right there, barrier-free. So let me ask a follow-up question about the vaccination issue. Are you finding that uh, it's vaccine reluctance or accessibility or both? It's, you know, so the data would suggest whatever you do, um, probably five to 7% of people in Massachusetts will never get vaccinated because they just, they don't believe in the science. Um, uh, you know, like what people refer to as anti-vaccine people. So it's about five to seven people. Um, there's certainly some people for whom uh, are waiting. And I hear this enough in the survey suggest this, they're waiting for the federal government to grant the official approval rather than emergency use. And there's something about the, the psychology of going from emergency use to formal federal approval that I think we will get a, another swath of individuals um, and finding trusted voices, um, yeah. particularly for people who don't trust government for all the, right, all the reasons of not trusting government, um, either because of institutional racism um, or uh, most likely institutional race, racism or not having a trusted advisor. Uh, and those are folks that we're working with, community organizations, faith-based organizations. Uh, we're spending about probably about $28, $30 million with faith-based organizations, municipal leaders, uh, and community-based organizations who are more trusted in their communities to reach them. Um, we have about 900 locations in our state, not including some of the temporary uh, sites and our and our buses and the like that you know are driving across the Commonwealth. So I don't think it's access as much as it is around hesitancy and us reaching uh, people where they are and when they're ready. Right? You want to make sure there's no barrier. Right. Um Let's talk about one issue about confusion. Um, in Just new, one? Uh, confusion. Okay. <laughs> in new guidelines released on Friday, the CDC announced that vaccinated students and staff members no longer need to wear masks inside schools, but that schools should try to continue to space children at least three feet apart in classrooms. Um, these changes come about six weeks or more after Massachusetts school officials said that they would be dropping all coronavirus-related protocols, including social distancing. 
So parents are likely to be a little confused by apparently not conflicting, but maybe inconsistent guidelines. Do you, what rules should parents be following at this point? So um, in, again, this is like one of those times when, so we've been asking the CDC for months to put out um, the K through 12 guidance. And again, so this is, a, you know, in June, I think it was the middle of June, when DESE sent out to school and district leaders um, what to do. So for the remainder of the school year, um, masking was um, highly recommended for indoors and maintaining other health and safety guidance. For summer programs, um, masking indoors was not required, but encouraged. So um, through the school year, it was actually mandatory um, to wear face coverings inside. And then when it came into summer, it was uh, encouraged, uh, but not required. Um, and so, and again, it had to do with masking and unmasking. And I think what we're doing right now is given that the CDC guidance has just come out, um, we're looking at it to, to make some recommendations about what the fall should look like. And we have, we have at least a like six weeks before school reopens. Yeah. So I think you will see some clearer guidance and uh, the Department of um, Elementary and Secondary Education is meeting with the Department of Public Health so that we can put out clarity around what to expect come fall. Okay. Um, so there are certainly, you know, as we all know, going to be some long-term impacts of the coronavirus. I mean, across the board, uh, lost jobs, lost housing, chronic medical conditions, shuttered businesses that are not going to reopen among a lot of others. But, you know, one long-term effect that I know you care deeply about is the long-term mental health impacts caused by the pandemic. What do you think needs to be done to adequately provide and support behavioral health treatment services to respond to what's going to be an increased demand? Yeah. Well, we, we're seeing the demand now. Um, yeah. I, I, I do believe that one of the consequences, many people are have been resilient and will get through the pandemic without um, any impact on their or, or any noticeable impact on their mental health or physical health. Um, but I do think for a lot of people, a 16 month pandemic yeah. is a very different emotional response than a, um, like a natural, yeah, a, a natural disaster or something, right? That happens very quickly. Uh, and we've been talking a lot about uh, increasing behavioral supports in Massachusetts. So in the Medicaid side of the, of the shop, of health and human services, we're investing about $200 million over the course of the next few years. Uh, one is to increase rates. And one of the reasons um, it's important to increase rates is it also increase, increases um, willingness of providers to see mental health the way I want them to, which is on parity with physical yeah. health. Yeah. Um, I think telebehavioral health is here to stay. Uh, we will continue to refine it because we we, we implemented it what with like two days notice uh, in the height of the pandemic. I think for many people having uh, the ability to um, participate in uh, clinical behavioral health treatment uh, remotely uh, will benefit them, particularly if it's an ongoing relationship. 
And we're paying that in terms of parity, Joe. Again, uh, parity with in-person services. We're trying to we're trying to message both to the provider community and to people experiencing a mental health challenge the the acceptability of behavioral health, both from a provider and from acknowledging you have a problem, right? The stigma part of behavioral health. We're rolling out what we refer to as um, the roadmap to behavioral health with our partners in the commercial space to increase what I refer to as the front door, um, increased access to outpatient services, urgent care, not having, not having to rely on an emergency department as your primary source of getting behavioral health. So we have a ways to travel. You will hear us talk about this a lot. And I don't mean just talk the talk, but we're really um, um, investing the resources. Um, you know, I, I wish I could make people, right? Make clinicians. But what I can do is to say, you know what? We value the provision of behavioral health services in Massachusetts, and we're going to invest in those services. Um, so to try to keep, you know, clinicians and others in the providing this very important services and just saying to individuals and families, if you're experiencing a challenge, it's okay, right, to admit that and to get the help that you need. And we need to make sure that when you then say, I need the help, we have the resources and the services to support you. But we're going to try to really build up the what I call the front door, the ambulatory side of behavioral health. And we've added lots of inpatient beds, um, but that's not, um, that's not enough. Well, and I think it is one of the consequences, whether it's post-traumatic stress, anxiety, depression, um, or just 16 yeah. months of isolation for yeah. so many people. Yeah. Well, if, if one of your legacies can go beyond what you've done in terms of uh, this pandemic to uh, to achieve the parity between behavioral health and uh, and medical services and medical health, that will that will be quite the achievement. So, um, so you know, during this kind of experience that you've had, um, sort of you know, managing and coordinating during the pandemic, and of course, there's certainly no playbook to follow um, in that regard. You always believe that there are things that you could have done differently, uh, or I guess some people would have said better, but I'll say differently. You know, for you, what what's sort of at the top of that list and how might you have done something differently? Well, you know, um, I think we will, I'll spend a lot of time um, once this pandemic is over um, thinking about, um, lessons learned because you, because we will have other global infections and viruses. I mean, right. One of the lessons clearly is like the world is really a really very small place. Yeah. Um, so I think that is when I think about, when I think about, um, what would we have done differently? Um, there's a few, um, one was, I do recall um, uh, when the federal government, when I realized that we were on our own and when the federal government, you know, we had ordered, I forget what it was, a half a million dollar pieces of PPE, had a 
um, they were sitting actually at the, the dock of New Jersey, the Port Authority of New Jersey, waiting for us to come to get it had arrived um, and it disappeared. Um, uh, the federal government used the term force majeure. I mean, just like they just took it. Um, uh, we, we realized we, we had to really scramble to secure PPE um, to keep people safe in Massachusetts. That was a, not only was that a dark day, but I think um, in, in hindsight, um, we would have set up the, we would have set up mechanisms to bring in PPE. And we were, we were relying on the federal government um, and it took probably two weeks for us to realize we, we needed to rely solely on ourselves and other states. Um, that's one. Obviously, the day um, of the what I refer to as the orange octopus, yeah. um, when one very, it was only one though, it was one very public piece of the vaccine booking system failed. And you know, that day, 60,000 people actually booked appointments. Mm -hmm. um, but for a lot of people, right, it was a very uh, visual um, reminder of like, what? This isn't working. And it was also the time, Joe, when, when the supply was very constrained. So the anxiety was high among people, right, to get vaccine. And there was a very limited supply. And then when on, on the day that a part of the system failed, it was like this um, combustible moment. You know, by the end of the day, you know, people were apologizing and we had a clumsy system for another week. But, um, and for five months, people had been assuring me that, nope, the system worked, we'd been testing it, um, you know, da, 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 da. And, you know, for 500,000 people swarming around, it probably, it might have worked. A million people swarming around and being anxious, it put that system into, um, a, you know, sort of a, a death spiral, if you would. Um, it's clear that the technology uh, and the technical expertise um, to really build these kinds of systems in a pandemic, um, you know, could be improved upon. And the third one is the day J&J paused, and honestly, the federal government did a pretty clumsy job, I thought, of explaining the pause. Um, I knew it was going to change the trajectory of our our, our vaccine uptake mm -hmm. because in yeah. December, the governor and I did this audacious thing. We said we wanted four, four, four point one million people vaccinated. We were setting a goal for the end of May, early June. Of course, we had no control over the supply. We didn't know what the supply was going to be, but we based it based on hearing from manufacturers and the like. And so we thought, okay, two million doses of J&J &J and right, four million doses of Moderna Pfizer that would get us to about four million people. And I realized two things that day. One is like you have to really explain when you pause something that's really just a pause to like, you know, overcorrect almost. And secondly, that we needed to then really um, rely on Pfizer and Moderna in order for us to hit, you know, as many get, get as many people vaccinated as possible. That, that was one of those moments where I thought, oh, I have, you know, I took J&J. &J. I was vaccinated with J&J. &J. I would do it again, uh, absolutely. But I realized that day 
that we were not going to hit too many. We would not reach too many people vaccinated. Now, the, again, the good news in Massachusetts, right? We're we're we we we've made strong progress, but that is because we've administered now 8.7 million um, vaccines doses, and of which we're about 260,000 of them are J and J. You know, yeah. almost like one tenth of what we thought. Yeah. So I'm going to, um, I want to close with both uh, a thank you and an editorial comment. So bear with me. Um, you know, I know from personal experience that whenever a state or local government uh, faces a tough issue or an emergency, uh, public officials are open to criticism for decisions that they make or defer or actions that they take or they fail to take. Um, certainly in the case of, of the COVID-19 pandemic, when confronted with this unprecedented, destructive, and prolonged health and economic crisis, criticism from people in the public and the media was compounded. Uh, but from my opinion, and, I, and many, many people who I've talked to, when one fairly considers all that was unknown and uncertain, the chaos in and misstatements from Washington, and the decisions that you and others had to make on the spot. And especially when we now consider the positive position in which the Commonwealth finds itself today, even given what's going on around us and the fact that it may be the side view and not the rear view mirror. I think you and other state and local leaders deserve an exceptionally high grade and our deep gratitude for managing and coordinating work of all the many others who contributed so much to getting us safely through this crisis. So, uh, Madam Secretary, thank you for being with me today, for your candor, and thank you so very much for your service to the Commonwealth and its citizens during this unprecedented health emergency. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Um, there are the heroes in Massachusetts are every resident who found a way to survive 16 months of a hopefully once in a lifetime pandemic. And there are the heroes are all of them and certainly our first responders and our healthcare providers. Um, you know, what we try to do is to channel their needs into being as safe as we could to get through this. So thank this you. Is Joe, this is Joe Alviani of O'Neill and Associates in Seven Letter, and this is OA on Healthcare. OA on Healthcare can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and the O'Neill and Associates in Seven Letter websites. Thanks for listening, and please be safe. <laughs>